their God, the Most High God, the Mighty God, the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. You have created heaven and the earth. You have made us. We are your people. We come to worship you and honor you this morning because you alone is worthy of our worship and adoration. Lord, we come to thank you for your love for each one of us. When we were still in darkness, you send the light. When we were without hope, you send hope in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was willing to come to this earth. He is willing to come to redeem us from our sins. We want to thank you and thank the Lord Jesus Christ for dying for us on the cross so that we have hope today. Our hope is sure because you have given to us the assurance in our hearts that we now belong to you because we have accepted the Lord Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. This blessed hope and the blessed assurance is ours that we know one day we'll see you face to face. And we have become your children, citizens of your kingdom. What a privilege is ours. We do thank the Holy Spirit who has been our guide all our lives. He has led us to the truth to know the Lord Jesus Christ and who has comforted us when we were needed comforting. He has helped us when we were weak and corrected us when we have gone wrong. Lord, we confess when we have failed, we have not lived the way we should have lived. We have not obeyed you as we should have obeyed you. We ask for your forgiveness. Lord, we, how often we are concerned for our own welfare without spending our time and effort on temporary things and not knowing to be busy in our Father's business to be busy in the kingdom business. Forgive us, Lord. Correct us in a way that we ought to go and teach us how that we should be engaged in the business of our Father. Help us to be engaged in the, the ministry of nurturing, ministry of caring, and help us, Lord, to engage in the ministry of intercessory prayer for each other and for your ministries. Lord, we want to be more like the way the Lord Jesus Christ was when he was on earth. We want to be humble, want to be useful, and want to be submitted to you in all our ways, that we can be used for your purpose and for your glory. Lord, we come to ask you this morning to teach us, and Lord, to have the willingness to do and to serve you wherever you want us to be. Help us to be engaged in mission ministries far and wide. We do pray for those who will be going on mission, that you'll be with them, strengthen their hands, and Lord, enable them to do the work that you send them to do, and to be your representatives wherever they go. We also pray for those who are considering short-term missions this summer, that you would encourage them, help them, and guide them, and prepare their hearts to go, to be willing to serve you want to serve. Lord, we also want to come and ask you to guide the lead pastor search committee. Lord, help each one of them 
to know your will and to guide them and to lead them in a way that they should search the person of your choice. And we know that one day you will bring such a person to be among us and to shepherd this flock, to guide us and to close our walk with you and to be a mature Christian, Lord, to serve you well. We just ask that you would hasten the day that we too would see this person coming to be among us. Meanwhile, we thank you for the ministry of Pastor Tom Cowan, for his faithfulness and for his teaching of your words, for his labor of love. We thank you for his ministry among us. We pray that you bless him and strengthen him. We pray that as we listen to your words, even today as he preaches, create in us a craving desire for your words to be fed, that we'll grow into maturity. Lord, teach us your ways as we listen to your words. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to thank you as a congregation, as a fellowship, for um, your careful listening over these last uh, eight, nine weeks to this series on the, on the meaning of the kingdom. Um, we have left much behind, but I hope I have convinced you in these days that the message of the kingdom is really the primary message of Jesus. Uh, next Sunday is Palm Sunday, Pastor Cindy speaking, then Easter Sunday I'll be back. And then starting on the first Sunday of April for about 10 weeks, we're going to take you on a bus tour. So bring your passports. You're on a bus tour through some of the major cities in the New Testament. Places like Jerusalem and Antioch and Athens, Philippi, Galatia. To see what the church was like there. And what the church needs to be like in our city. I want to try to share with you the, the difference between the city and the country. When Paul started churches, he started them in cities. And there's something I call cityness. So we have to understand, even in a city like Vancouver, which I think is a very sensuous city, where a city is moved um, by our senses. So we'll look at the church and the city, the backdrop of our city, and to see out of the book of Jeremiah that the task of the church is to bless the city we are in by being the people of God. That starts on April the 7th, once for about 10 weeks or something like that. So we'll go on a bus tour each Sunday, get on a bus, and we'll go from city to city, okay? Well, I'll drive. You can do whatever you want. Okay, there you go. Anyway, I hope you've heard this week that the message of the kingdom is really the crux of the prayer of Jesus. Remember, he says, Father, may your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it's done in heaven. That's what the kingdom is. Kingdom is not a place. The kingdom is the reign and the rule of God. It starts now and is going to be completed in the days to come. It is present and it's future. It's embryonic. It's something which starts in our lives now. Jesus says in the end of Matthew chapter 6, He says, if you seek first the kingdom, all of these things, that is, He's been talking actually about food and clothing, the things we worry about and spend our time on, all of these things will be added to you. But the kingdom is to be the priority. Jesus described the kingdom in a series of down-to-earth stories which we call parables. We've looked at some of them. And the kingdom message of the kingdom doesn't stop at the cross. 
the, book, the beginning of the book of Acts says, after his suffering, Jesus presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days, and it says, and he spoke about the kingdom of God. In other words, the message continued from the risen Jesus. And when you get to the end of the book of Acts, the story of the Apostle Paul, it says, two whole years Paul stayed there, probably Rome, in his own rented house, and welcomed everyone who came to see him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God, and he taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. So I hope you've heard that the primary message of Jesus is really about the kingdom of God. And in this final study this morning, we want to kind of lean towards and move towards the challenge and the hope of the kingdom which is still to come and which is to be finalized. As Jesus moves towards the cross, we get that on Palm Sunday, we get it Good Friday, then obviously Easter Sunday, he knows that his earthly life is coming to an end. He knows that the future is coming closer. He knows that the end is coming. And it seems almost that he has to speed up and finish this message of the kingdom. There's two words that you're going to need as we move into this morning. Words you may know, you may not, but I'll give you them anyway. The first word is called worldview. Every one of us has a worldview. And it's not just what we see. Our worldview is how we see things. It's the criteria that we use inside us, as it were, behind our eyes, to make our decisions. Every one of us has a worldview. Things that shape the decisions we make. Some of our worldview has been gathered consciously out of our choices. Some of it has come unconsciously. We've been, but we're always being shaped by what we think and what we see. Hopefully, as Christians, we have a Christian worldview. A Christian mind. One that is shaped by the thoughts and the mind of God. That's one word you need. The second word we need this morning might be new to some of you is the word eschatology. Isn't that a big word? Eschatology. Eschatology is the word that is all of the teaching related to the return of Jesus. It is all the future events that still have to take place. Eschatology is our belief in a returning and a reigning Jesus. When he talks in John 14 to his disciples, in my Father's house are many mansions, I am going to prepare a place for you. That's about eschatology. And here's another phrase. The message of the kingdom this morning, you didn't know you were coming to theology class. The message of the kingdom is what we call inaugurated eschatology. Whoa, there you go. There will be a test afterwards, by the way. Okay, just want to alert you to that. There will be a test this morning. Inaugurated eschatology means that the future has started now. It's begun, it's inaugurated now. The beginning is now to be realized and fulfilled in the future. For instance, when John says in 1 John chapter 3, verse 14, he says, we know that, listen to his word, we know that we've passed from death to life. Because we love our brothers and we love each other. Now notice he doesn't say, John doesn't say, we will pass from death to life. John says we know that we have already passed from death to life. Eternal life is something which has started, inaugurated, embryonic in who we are right now. It started now. So these two words give us the interplay in four different ways in our lives. Okay? First of all, there's people who've got what I call no worldview, no eschatology. The lens that they look through has no eternal hope. 
They simply expend their energy in getting through the day. If you follow the writings or read Jean Paul Sartre, Albert Camus, existentialist writers, you get a sense of eat, drink, and be married for tomorrow we die. All gone. There's a reality called solipsism, which says reality is whatever we simply perceive it to be. We make our own heaven and our own hell down here, and then that's the end of it. That's no world you know eschatology. Seems that the only hope some people have is in winning the lottery. Some people have a worldview, but no eschatology. With me? They're here to save the planet, save the trees, save the whales, work for social justice. All good, all the efforts to make the world a better place for coming generations. But the whole issue of the environment is worrying some people. Will there be a future for the planet? Will there be a future life? So they have a worldview that shapes what they do, but they've got no sense of future hope that's really rooted in God. Now, there's people also, third, they have, a world, have an eschatology, but no worldview. And this is for some Christians, there's a denial of involvement for the issues of the world. And so issues of social justice and the environment, they say, that doesn't mean anything. We're simply waiting to get out of here. And we're going to be with our God. And one particular aspect, there's some years ago, there was a very popular series of, of books and I think they became videos and movies um, called the Left Behind series. If you followed those, um, that's really reflected in that. It's these Christians taken out of the earth and everyone is left behind. And so the easy answer for some people with this view, particularly obviously Christians, is why bother? It creates an attitude of retreat and withdrawal from the present issues of social need and social justice. There's an eschatology, but no worldview. There's an old gospel song, most of you are way too young to know it. An old gospel song that said simply, this world is not my home, I'm just passing through. I'm just passing through here. Now there is a sense we are pilgrims, but we're pilgrims to be committed to what goes on here. So that one won't work for me either. Here's what we need. We need an eschatology that shapes our worldview. That's number four. We need an eschatology that shapes our worldview. We need a strong grasp of the hope of the future, but one which shapes how we live today. That is the force of the kingdom. We have a hope in a returning and a reigning king. We're called to live in the present, in the light of the kingdom, which is still to come. This is the inbreaking of the kingdom into the present. Now, we usually think, you know, the decisions we make today will shape our future. To a large extent, that's true. But the kingdom also teaches and works the reverse of that. It teaches us that things in life today can be different because of what we believe about tomorrow and because of what is to come in the future, in the coming kingdom. As Jesus moves towards Palm Sunday, which is next week, his intensity seems to change. He feels almost a cross coming towards him. Perhaps time is running out. He sees a, a new urgency to finish his message, to make sure his disciples understand the urgency of this message. That's why he gathers with them in what we call the Upper Room Discourse, the book of John, chapter 13 through 16. In my Father's house are many mansions. I'm going to prepare a place for you. So Jesus had told stories about the kingdom being like a man sowing in a field or finding a treasure or looking for a pearl, being like mustard seed. But if you read the Gospels, particularly Matthew, now his emphasis becomes stronger, it's more intense. 
And in Matthew, Jesus uses five major parables to talk about this coming kingdom. He moves from the kingdom being a present reality, mustard seed and pearls and treasure, to being a future reality. And the impact and the difference that that is to make in your life and mine. So there's a dimension of the kingdom which is still to come. And on the basis of that, we are called to examine and change our lives today. That's inaugurated eschatology, folks. It's an eschatology which changes and shapes our worldview. Let me give you a couple of ideas about this. The reality of the coming kingdom is to stimulate hope in us for today, rather than despair. I don't know if you've ever read um, Dante's Inferno. But you might know one line from it. It's the inscription above the door to Satan's kingdom. And it simply says, Abandon hope, all ye who enter here. And that is because the first and the most powerful thing Satan can steal and rob from us is hope. When we lose hope, we lose energy, we lose drive, we lose passion, we lose initiative, we lose motive. To lose hope is to take the first step on the ladder in the descent to hell. My wife Harriet often sees people who are living in the streets and she'll say to me, look into their eyes. Tom, look into their eyes. They have lost hope. They have lost hope. But the revolutionary nature of hope in the New Testament in a returning and reigning king. You believe in it, and I believe in it. There's the power to change how ordinary people live their lives today. Life can throw all kinds of things at us. Some of you know that, and we know that in our family. Issues of health, and money, and family struggles. And sometimes we might wonder, how can we go on? How can I get up tomorrow and get dressed and go to work or whatever it is, go back to church on a Sunday morning? How can we go on? Here's what Paul says to us. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement we provide, through all of those stories of men and women of faith, these stories are written so that when we're faced with life and all that life throws at us, Paul says, so that we might have hope. In over the 44 years I've been a pastor, I've lost count of the number of times I've stood at a graveside. In my life, I've buried my father. I have buried my mother. We've buried a daughter-in-law. One day I buried my best friend in Victoria. I buried five babies. I buried two young people who committed suicide. I've stood with countless families in tears. And we have looked into that dark slit in the earth. And I understand what Paul says in Thessalonians. I know what he means when he says, we grieve. And let me just tell you, it is normal to grieve. It is healthy to grieve. He says, we grieve. We've cried with people, we've hugged them, we've joined our hands with them. We grieve. But he goes on and says, we do not grieve like those who have no hope. Ain't that the difference? You stand at a graveside of someone you love and we grieve. But he says, but not like those who have no hope. 
First John says to us, see what great love the Father has lavished upon us. By the way, the word for great there is an unusual word. It means that it's the idea that something that comes from outside our planetary system. See the great love the Father has lavished upon us, that we should be called the children of God. And that's what we are. The reason the world does not know us is because they didn't know Him. Dear friends, we are the children of God and what we will be has not been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. And then it next says in the next verse, And all of us who have this hope in Him purify themselves, just as He is pure. Hope is to have a moral impact on our lives. People who have lost hope and live in despair often have lost their moral moorings. It doesn't matter. There's little point in ethics. Their moral compass does not work anymore. The book of Thessalonians says to us that hope is the anchor of the soul. Do you know the word hope doesn't appear in the book of Revelation? You think it's got to be there, but it's not. So I started thinking about, why is that? The only answer I can give you is this. That Jesus is now fully there. Jesus is fully present. And we do not need hope when the presence of Christ is with us. Got it? We need hope when He's not there. And we're waiting for Him. We need hope then. But we do not need hope when Christ is fully there. And we are with Him. Hope, you see, has been fully realized. Fully fulfilled, inaugurated, inaugurated eschatology has come to be. So when Jesus talked about a coming kingdom, he says, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent servants to those who had invited him to his banquet. Tell them to come. Come on in. But it says they refused to come. They sent more servants and said, Tell those who have been invited, I've prepared my dinner, my ox, my fatted. Cattle is being butchered. Everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. Story goes on. You may know it. You and I have been given an invitation to eternity. To a hope that will change our lives. Make sure please you're ready to come. When the king comes, he will ask you, Have you got your invitation? And you hold hope in your hand. Let's move on. The reality of the coming kingdom is to stimulate in us creativity rather than maintenance. You know, sometimes in life, all we're doing is we're doing just enough to get by. The coming kingdom calls for more. One of Jesus' parables again about the coming kingdom, Matthew 25, verse 14. Again, the kingdom will be like a man going on a journey, called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one he gave five bags of gold, to another he gave two bags, to another he gave one bag. Each according to his ability. Well, I'll get different gifts. Then he went on his journey. The man who received five bags of gold, you may know what he did. He went at once, put his money to work, and gained five more. The man with two bags, he also worked hard, gained two more. The man who had received just one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. We often call this the parable of the talents. The master has gone away, and he gives somebody five, somebody two, somebody one. And he says, invest them wisely, put them to work. And when he returns, the man with five has got five more. Well done! The man who's got two has been given two has got two more. Well done! The man with one buried it in the ground, dug it up, brought it back and said, you give me one, there's one back. He didn't lose anything. 
Why did he do that? Verse 25 gives us our answer. He says, I was afraid. And I went out and took what you gave me and buried it in the ground. Here is back. Man didn't lose anything. But he was pretty angry. Now, I don't know about you, but I can identify with a man who says, I was afraid. Sometimes we're afraid of failure. What if something doesn't work? What if people laugh at us? So in our fear, we do what is safe, which is usually folks doing more of the same. The worst thing that we can do is take the good gifts that God has given to us and bury them in the ground. This is what I'll call maintenance. Most of the things that we call radical are not radical at all. They're often the same old thing simply with a new name. But if we truly lived in the light of the coming kingdom, then we would dare to be creative. Kingdom hope does not feel the need to preserve things buried in the ground. The kingdom can take risks. People who believe in the kingdom now and the kingdom to come can be the bold adventurers in every aspect of life because we do not believe in the need to preserve the status quo. It is no accident, you look through history, that the people who changed the face of the world, who brought about radical change in society, were often the people who believed in the kingdom. The news media often overlooks the fact that the new adventurers who opened up the world, who advanced the cause of education, who brought hospitals, led civil rights movements, gave their lives to abolish slavery, changed the child labor laws in Great Britain. That meant that when you, um, there's all these little flocks of little kids, little boys run around, you get an eight, nine year old and you just say, you come work for me. And you know what the, the, basic job was, you put them up, up inside chimneys to clean chimneys. They're wiry little kids and no meat in their bones at all. That's not my grandchildren. And if they get stuck up there, too bad. You just go get another one. You left them there to die. There was people who fought to change the child labor laws in Great Britain. Many, many of these people, most of them, were Christians. They believed in the work of the kingdom. And rather than bury their talent and their time in the ground, invested it at great risk often for the sake of the kingdom. If we believed and really believed in the future reality of the kingdom, let me ask you, in what ways are we playing it safe in bearing the gifts of God in the ground in our lives and maybe as a church? How would our firm hold in the returning Jesus change the mission and the ministry of VCBC here in Vancouver? We'll talk about that when we go on our bus tour April, May, and June. What risks are we willing to take for the sake of the kingdom? The worst thing Jesus says we can do is to bury the treasure he gives us, the message of the kingdom, in the ground. When the king comes, he will ask, What did you do with what I gave you? Creativity, not making. The reality of the coming kingdom is to stimulate service out of our lives and not just selfishness. Again, a story. Matthew, when the King and Son of Man comes in his glory, and all his angels with him, he will sit down on his glorious throne. And all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates sheep and goats. He put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you are blessed of my Father. Take your inheritance. Take the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry. You gave me something to eat. I was thirsty. You gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. 
It's when the king comes to evaluate life. Now understand, Jesus is not saying these acts of service and social work make you Christians. Not saying that. But he's saying that if we truly confess that we love Jesus and seek his kingdom, and if we would radically follow him, then we will be motivated to move from selfishness to service. That's because service to Christ and love for Christ cannot be separated from service to people. It is the embodiment, the visible manifestation, the fleshness of what is invisible and hidden in our hearts, made visible. So the most powerful force in shaping our lives is what we believe about the future. And those who believe in the returning and reigning king, we hold in our hands the most powerful truth imaginable. You know that? The coming kingdom is to inspire our minds. It is to challenge our lives. It is to excite us about what all of life can be like. We are engaging with the most powerful truth on earth when we say, Father, your kingdom come. And we embrace the kingdom of God. We are joining the most powerful force you can think of when we cry out, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth right now as it's done in heaven. So one day, one great day, when the king comes in power and in glory, all that's been wrong will be made right. One great day, when the king comes in power and in glory, all that's been crooked will be made straight. One great day, all that's broken will be fixed. One great day, all that has been hurt will be healed. One great day, all that we've seen through a distorted, broken lens, we will then see face to face. One great day, all the tears that we have shed over the people we've loved and let go into those dark splits on the earth. One great day, all of the tears that we have shed will be dried up. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? So as we finish this series, may I invite you to stand. I don't think there's any more powerful or thoughtful way to finish this than the words that come from the Apostle John when he was given just a glimpse into that day. And then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain standing at the center of the throne encircled by the four living creatures and elders. The Lamb had seven horns, seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand 
of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures, the twenty-four elders, fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp. And they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe, every language, every people, every nation. And you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve God and they will reign on the earth. And I looked. And I heard the voice of many angels Thousands upon thousands, ten thousands upon ten thousand. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and in a loud voice they cried, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And I heard every creature in heaven, earth, and under the earth, and on the sea and all that's in them, saying, To him who sits on the throne, And to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet. And there were loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord in Christ. And He will reign forever and ever. 